This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Today on the program, we are talking about mucus. Yeah, mucus. And before you get all grossed out and change the channel or you choose a different podcast, consider this. Just about every creature in the world creates this stuff in one way or another. The ability to produce mucus was an important evolutionary step that takes us back hundreds of millions of years. And during those years, animals have found all sorts of uses for snot. Take, for instance, the many ocean animals that have evolved to collect food and protect themselves using elaborate mucus filters. Some researchers have taken to calling these structures snot palaces, and they can grow to the equivalent size of a five-story building in just a day's time. But here's the problem. These structures are incredibly delicate, and so scientists have never really been able to study them. Not, that is, until now. Joining us on the line from the California coast is Kakani Katija, the principal engineer for the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, where her work is focused on bio-inspired engineering design, experimental fluid dynamics, and the feeding ecology of marine organisms. Kakani Katija, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. So I think I probably haven't done justice in my introduction to these animals known as larvaceans. Can you describe these creatures? Larvations. So larvations are, um, they are what we call a basal chordate. In other words, that means these animals are our nearest invertebrate relative in the tree of life. And so the reason why they have this name larvation is because they look like larvae their entire life cycle. So think of a frog tadpole. It looks like a frog tadpole its entire life. And what they're really, really known for is the uh, generation of these mucus houses that they live with. So really interesting group of animals that are being studied. Do you recall when you first became aware of this really crazy cool snot superpower that they have? (laughs) I do recall because it wasn't very long ago. My background's in engineering and it wasn't until I uh, started working at Mbari, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, about five years ago, did I start to learn about these animals. You know, these animals, at least these giant larvations, are found in the deep waters of the ocean. And unfortunately, they don't get this widespread knowledge or understanding of their presence. And when we say giant larvations, it's, I mean, these things are still pretty small, right? We use the term giant in a relative way. (laughs) Most larvations, their body lengths are on the order of about a centimeter. But the giant larvations, particularly the groups that we find in the Monterey Bay area, their body lengths can be up to 10 centimeters. And from this 10 centimeter body, and actually starting with just like a square millimeter of mucus, these things can create within just an hour, this snot palace that is feet across. What are they doing? How are they doing that? (laughs) Uh, Well, that's still an open question. And in fact, that's a subject of a paper that I'm trying to write up because out of The 30 years that Mbari has been exploring the waters off of Monterey Bay, the researchers there have only observed these animals building their structures, like blowing them up from their rudimentary sizes of, you know, about a a millimeter across three times. And one of those times I was fortunate to be there. 
We were also there with a new technology that we developed, and we were able to observe this animal blowing up its house from start to finish. And that's where that hour-long duration comes from. And that's something I, I'm trying to get published. <laughs> so I want to talk about this tool. But first, I want to talk about sort of like the awe-inspiring nature of this. You're an engineer. So when you see a creature do this thing, take a little bit of snot, literally, and blow it up like a huge balloon, why does that interest you from an engineering perspective? Oh, gosh, where do you start? You know, my background is actually in aerospace engineering, and, you know, I know that NASA and a variety of different researchers have spent a lot of time trying to understand how you build expandable structures, right? Because the challenge is, is if you ever want to colonize parts of space, you have to get mass off the planet, you know, into structures that people can inhabit. And so that's been an ongoing question is, you know, how do you how do you do that? How do you expand structures that people can live inside? And and to me, the first time I saw these animals essentially doing that, you know, imagine going from a millimeter sized rudiment up to something that's about a meter across. I mean, that's a several order of magnitude increase in size. And we would love to know how to do that. And so that's one reason. The other reason is these animals are making structure out of mucus. I'd love to see somebody, you know, who's suffering from the flu or or a cold try to do that with whatever's in their tissue, right? Like engineering and engineers, we think about uh, novel ways to build things. And, you know, these animals really, for me, served as inspiration for perhaps coming up with better ways to construct structures. I love the idea that from this little organism in the ocean, we might learn how to build structures that could take us to space. It's overwhelming to think about like all the things that we can learn if we're just paying attention to nature. Right, exactly. And that's part of the reason why the Bioinspiration Lab, we really truly believe that if we can develop tools to observe animals do their things in nature and provide quantitative observations, not just I see an animal doing it. The goal is for someday we can understand, at least from a mechanistic level, how animals are able to achieve some of the incredible things that they're able to do and while living in a really challenging environment and perhaps could lead to inventions or developments that we can rely on and use. And so that's a very multifaceted, multi-year process. But if you aren't able to address that first problem, which is observe an animal in its environment, you're a long ways from the final goal or the final product. There's another cool attribute to these mucus filters. They're really apparently quite good at sinking carbon. Can you explain that? Right. So these animals are what we call filter feeders because their mucus houses act as a filter. And through this process, these animals are driving particle-rich fluid into their mucus structures and some of those particles wind up in the mouth of the animal. The animal ingests those particles. But a lot of particles still remain within the mucus house. And what happens is that these structures become laden with particulate or laden with carbon. And these animals, believe it or not, these structures are expendable. 
to the animal. And so once these animals use their houses, if the houses become too clogged and become more inefficient particle filters, these animals will abandon them and swim off to another location and build a new one. But what's interesting is that those mucus structures that they had inhabited They are laden with particles, they're negatively buoyant, and they rapidly sink to the bottom of the ocean. And in some cases on the order of 800 meters per day. And that contributes significantly to carbon cycling, right? Because as these animals build houses, as many of these animals build houses and they sink rapidly to the bottom, if carbon reaches the bottom of the ocean, it's it's effectively sequestered. And that's an important role that these animals play throughout our ocean is a lot of other animals too, this biological pump, which moves carbon from the sea surface or near the surface waters down to the bottom of the ocean. So there's a climate science reason for studying these. There's Mm -hmm. a biological reason for studying these. There's an engineering case for studying these. And yet we've only observed the building of these things a few times before, as you mentioned. What's been the challenge that prohibited the study of these mucus filters before? Well, I would say, I mean, the challenge obviously is technological. You know, these animals live in the ocean midwaters. So what that means is a region that's actually the vastest ecosystem on our planet. The midwater reaches from just below 200 meters from the surface and extends down to about 50 meters above the bottom. Um, And so that volume is the largest habitable ecosystem on our planet. It's also, unfortunately, the least explored. Lots of researchers, particularly deep sea researchers, tend to go straight to the bottom because there's a lot of animals that live there, but it also is an analog to terrestrial applications, right? The fact that there's a bottom, there's a reference, and it's easier to kind of come up with a reference to base all your observations from. And the ocean's midwaters are this vast three-dimensional space where you don't have very much of a reference besides the depth where you're at. And the traditional way or the historical way researchers would understand what lived in the ocean's midwaters was to drag these very large fishing nets behind research vessels and collect whatever was there. But the problem is, is if you're trying to do that with gelatinous animals that make mucus structures, They don't look anything like they would underwater once they've been brought to the surface if they were collected in this fashion. If they could even be dragged up at all. Exactly. But, you know, when gelatinous animals are brought to the surface using nets, I mean, it looks like a pile of unidentifiable goo and never mind mucus structures. And so it's really the advent of robotic technology, underwater imaging that had really opened up this region of the ocean's midwaters, which is where these animals live. And I should say, though, that Oikoplura, which is a smaller group of larvations, I mean, they're more readily found near to the surface. You can actually see them while snorkeling in most places. It's just hard to see them because they're so transparent. And a lot of what we've known about giant larvations has been largely inferred by our knowledge and understanding of these smaller oikoplura. So to solve 
the problem of being able to more directly study the large larvations and not just to take what you know about them based on what you know about similar but smaller organisms, you and your team developed an instrument called Deep PIV that stands for Particle Imaging Velocimetry. How, how does this work? Well, so I should, I guess, take a step back and explain that particle image velocimetry or PIV is a technique that's pretty commonly used by experimental fluid mechanicists or people in engineering labs that are interested in understanding how, you know, water might flow through a pump or gas in air might be moving through an engine or a turbine. And so this technique is a common diagnostic technique that's been employed by engineers since the 90s. And what we did was essentially take that concept or take that idea of that technique and house it and package it in such a way that we can use it underwater in the natural environment like the ocean. And so that is largely where we borrowed these methods from common laboratory techniques and applied them in the ocean. Uh, so we're trying to bring the laboratory into the ocean. And the instrument itself includes uh, high-powered illumination, in our case, laser, and imaging or optics that capture the motion of things that move in and through that laser. And the first time we've deployed this instrument was in 2015, which is actually around the same time that we first collected this data about these giant larvation houses. And when you say the first time you deployed it, what you did was you attached this to a rather large submersible vehicle. Right. So one of the things that we are very fortunate to have at our disposal at Embari are remotely operated vehicles. And so these are deep diving robots that are attached to a ship via a really long tether, but it allows an ROV pilot to position the vehicle, fly the vehicle, and also control instrumentation like the DPIV instrument that's on board the vehicle. And Embari has three different deep diving robot ROVs. One of them, the Doc Ricketts, is rated to 4,000 meters. And so the instrument DPIV is also rated to 4,000 meters. And so that means that instrument could be deployed with that vehicle anywhere from the sea surface to 4,000 meters, looking at whatever process or whatever animal we come across. This tool, the DPIV, it's a very, very precise tool. These <laughs> submersibles are very large. It must take a lot of work and effort to control this so that you can focus in on one of these, you know, relatively very small organisms. Yeah. And at some point you should talk to an ROV pilot <laughs> about this process of trying to integrate the DPIV instrument onto vehicles, but not only that, like what the operation is required to achieve in order to collect the kind of data that we've been able to publish. It takes an entire crew, like a ship's crew and vehicle pilots and engineers just to get useful data for this kind of analysis. And it's been quite a whirlwind because 2015 was the first time we deployed the instrument. I remember the first time I was talking to one of our ROV pilots, chief pilot Knut Brecky at Ambari, and I was telling him this uh, 
instrument or this idea. This is what I'm hoping we can do with ROVs. And he looked, I remember the look he gave me, like, <laughs> are you crazy? And I kind of laughed and I said, well, you know, we can do this while scuba diving. Surely we can figure this out. <laughs> and I think they saw that as a challenge and they rose to it. And I'm just so grateful that they've bought into the idea, the technique and, and that we've been successful. So thanks to the efforts of this big team, you have been able to recreate three-dimensional reconstructions of these incredibly elaborate and very delicate filters. Yeah. And like I said, it was a big group effort, not just, you know, the scientists involved in generating the models, but the ROV pilots as well as the ship's crew. When you started looking at these reconstructions, what were the things that really started to jump out at you? Well, I should say that these reconstructions were somewhat accidental. The deep PIV instrument was developed for us as a flow diagnostic tool. The idea was that we could hold the vehicle relative to the larvation constant and then watch as the animal pumps its tail particles that are kind of streaming through the laser sheet to give us a proxy for fluid motion because fluid is transparent. And it was only then did we realize how clear we were not only seeing the animal while it was inside its mucus house, but also the mucus structure around it. And that surprise led to this idea of, well, maybe we should use deep PIV, this laser sheet imaging device, uh, in a scanning mode to highlight what all of these structures look like and borrow from medical imaging to recreate uh, three-dimensional structures. And so that, that actually was, I'd say, more accidental than actually planned. Isn't it great, like in science, you can have something that's sort of an accident, sort of a surprise, and it results in a publication in nature? <laughs> I know, right? I wish that happened more often. But um, it is, it's incredible, right? And it's just being aware and being open to what you're experiencing or being present. And in our case, especially in the deep sea, anytime you have an instrument that can allow you or enable you to see things in a completely different way, it really opens you up to this new perspective, really drives this kind of innovation, but also inspiration to think of about how do you address these problems creatively. So there are a lot of very delicate creatures in the ocean that we simply can't collect and bring to the surface for study through, you know, like net dragging, like you were saying earlier. Are you getting a lot of interest from other researchers who would like to know more about using the deep PIV to study the organisms that they're interested in? Yeah, it, it kind of cracks me up because we spent so much time developing the instrument for this purpose of measuring fluid motion. And most of the interest I'm getting from people, especially about this instrument, has become the 3D reconstructions. And that just kind of cracks me up. But I think it is really interesting and important because, like you said, there's a lot of animals in the deep sea that are gelatinous or they create mucus structures that anytime we collect or anytime we prepare them for museum collections or whatever, so people can describe them. I mean, they look nothing like they do 
while in their natural environment. And so what I'm hoping, and I think this is why this instrument has generated a lot of interest, is that we can move towards creating something like a digital voucher for life that we come across in these natural environments where like a 3D model that reconstructs their body could be used in conjunction with DNA as a voucher that a museum might be able to store and share with other researchers. So yes, it's surprising to me, but I I see the uh, possibilities really can be endless. You're also getting a lot of mainstream media attention. I wonder how much of that do you think has to do with the word snot palaces? (laughs) Well, I have to say that I didn't come up with snot palaces. Actually, a journalist, I'm trying to remember where, but in 2017, which was when we published our first DPIV paper, that term was spun up. And I was like, you know, at first I was like, ugh. But then I realized that Yes, it is indeed a snot palace, and it is a great way to communicate what we're seeing. I don't see how that's inaccurate, and I'm just loving, <laughs> I'm loving seeing other people use the term as well. Your life hasn't always been focused on science. You were once a member of the U.S. figure skating team. Of all things. Of all things. But, you know, what's really interesting about this to me is something that I've noticed when I talk to people like you, which is this trend that I see where learning mastery in one thing leads to the ability to be masterful at other things. And I wonder if you've ever reflected on, on how, you know, like, I think a lot of people say like, well, you know, it taught me discipline. It taught me this, but like it taught you to master something. And are those lessons, lessons that you carry with you in in everything else that you do? (laughs) Well, I don't know if I've mastered anything. (laughs) (laughs) To begin with, but I see your point. And I think for me, especially the work ethic that I've picked up from skating. And I started skating when I was quite young. I I remember I would have practice at 4.45 in the morning every weekday and training in cold ice rinks that would rain on you in the morning because of all the condensation and Yeah, I don't always have the most positive (laughs) memories from that, but there's a lot to be said to shoot for 100% versus 80%. And this is like a discussion I'm currently having with a a number of engineers I work with as we're trying to develop a a new system that addresses like 80% of the requirements rather than 100% of the requirements. And I feel like that drive for 100% is really... I don't know, is really what sets work apart or sets, you know, your outcomes apart. But but also the fact that by any means, I don't view myself as a very successful figure skater because I never made it to the Olympics, but I strive for that. I mean, I got close, but this saying that I hear often is that, you know, shooting for the moon, because even if you miss, you'll be among the stars. I mean, that is definitely something I think on and internalize every single day. You were shooting for the moon at one point. Your bachelor's and master's degrees were in aeronautics, and you were at one point focused on a future in space exploration. How did you wind up shifting from studying the sky to studying the ocean? It's funny that you mention that because it's 
well, two things. One, I'm not totally done with this space dream. In fact, <laughs> I submitted my application for the NASA astronaut pool this last go round. You know, pipe dreams. But though I love this is great. This is a great pipe dream. <laughs> you know, you never give up on some some of your childhood dreams. But um, it was shockingly easy to make this transition from aeronautics or aerospace engineering to ocean engineering. And a lot of that was just because of my academic training. I wound up focusing on fluid mechanics, right? So the the physics behind the motion of fluids. And instead of the application of fluid mechanics to an airplane or a rocket leaving Earth's atmosphere, I instead started applying the same physics to how animals swim and how animals move, particularly in marine environments. And so that transition was really seamless. It actually happened in graduate school during my PhD. And it was that experience. I mean, I was very fortunate to have mentors that were jellyfish biologists, uh, Jack Costello and Sean Colin, and they really opened my eyes to one, the ocean, but the ocean being this unexplored place that's filled with life that we know very, very little, if anything, about. And I'm reminded of my childhood days with my dad watching Star Trek reruns and this idea that we're looking for life in outer planets, um, want to engage with it and want to study it. You know, we, we can be doing that now in the ocean. And so that's where the transition began. That's bioengineer and future astronaut Kakani <laughs> Katija. Or, recent... we'll or not. We'll see. <laughs> Growth mindset, right? Uh-huh. Kakani Katija's recent paper in the journal Nature describes a new tool that can help researchers understand the enigmatic mucus structures known as snot palaces. Kakani, (laughs) thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much, Matthew, for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.